You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Christmas, how are you? Happy New Week. Happy New Week to you too. I'm really good actually. I'm feeling quite chipper and quite optimistic. I'm sort of looking at the the year ahead and thinking I have great plans. I just hope they all come to fruition. You you are the man with the plan, so I absolutely trust that everything <laughs> will come into fruition. All right, so we've got some weird and wonderful questions that are coming through. First, let's start with a caller. We've got Jeff in Woodmead. Hi, Jeff. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Um, just a quick one here. I'm busy writing the book, and really a, a part, just a short part of it has to do with brain and mind. Now, I've done that research into the ER ratios of the brain and I cannot reach a consensus when they talk about the balance of the ER ratios. Do they mean it's equal or is it a ratio of, say, 80-20 or 40-60? Or what, what, what do they mean by balanced ER ratio of neuron cells? Did you get that, Chris? Um, I, I think so. I mm. think what you're referring to is the ratio of neuronal cells to non-neuronal cells. Is that what you're referring to? Excitatory and inhibitory cells. So you've got. Ah, yeah, I know what you mean. You're talking about um, the brain cells come in different flavors, and they well, use different neurons. And they, yeah. and, and okay, let's start again. Right, the brain is a mixed population of nerve cells and non-nerve cells, and in fact, the non-nerve cells outnumber the brain cells maybe ten to twenty to one. But focusing just on the nerve cells, nerve cells come in a range of different flavors, and they are distinguished by shapes and sizes, where they connect to, and also, critically, the nerve chemicals that they use to talk to each other. And some nerve cells use one type of chemical, which, when squirted onto another nerve cell, excites it. Other nerve cells use chemicals which, when squirted onto other nerve cells, suppress their activity. They're so-called inhibitory nerve transmitters. The ratio that um, is commonly trotted out is that about 80% of the nerve cells in the brain are inhibitory. They use GABA gamma aminobutyric acid as their inhibitory nerve transmitter and about 20% are excitatory. They use a range of transmitters but chiefly glutamate is the commonest one. All right, uh, Jeff, did you get that? Yes, I did and then there's just one other question. Can I go? Yes, go ahead. All right, they, they talk about also the processing of information into the senses is around about 11 million bits of information. Uh, 10 million is the eyes, 100,000, a million is the, is the skin, etc. But now they haven't taken into account the enteric brain, which is obviously the, the stomach. What about that? Surely that also is processing information, and surely all other cells in the, in the body are processing or receiving information from the external environment. So this 11 million seems to, to, to relate only to the five senses. There's about 100 billion nerve cells in the brain, but there are many, many more nerve cells around the rest of the body as well that we don't tend to take into account. And the enteric nervous system is part and parcel of that. But because you have nerve cells, it's quantity isn't everything. Quality really matters. And if you ask an elephant, for example, how many brain cells an elephant's got, because it has a huge body, it has a huge brain to supply a huge body, doesn't mean it's necessarily more intelligent. In other words, you need lots of nerve cells to process information from particular areas of the body if there's processing to be done. But it doesn't mean you're conscious of all of it or that all of it contributes to cognition. 
So, yes, you have a lot of nerve fibers supplying your skin. Uh, certain parts of the body have a lot more nerve cells than others. You have a lot of nerve cells in your gut. But if they are operating autonomously, so your gut, for example, you don't have to think about pushing food along and swallowing and, and, and uh, you know, moving, moving food around in your guts and secreting gastric juices at the right time. It's all done for you. And this is because you have a nervous system there that's producing a coordinated sequence of actions. It's informing the brain what it's done, but it's not informing the brain each time it does one of those actions and how it's doing it and asking for permission. So it's an independent entity that then tells the brain what it's done with uh, what it can do rather than waiting for, uh, for instructions and waiting for feedback. All right. Thank you so much, Jeff in Woodmead, for that question. We've got one on WhatsApp that says, Hi, Chris. If a person were in a spaceship traveling directly to the center of the universe at the exact same speed as the universe expanding, would they experience time or the aging process? <laughs> well, this is confusing, to say the least, for, for anybody to try and wrap their brain around. But there is no center to the universe because if you start anywhere in the universe and you look in any direction, you see the universe expanding away from you in all directions. And so there is not really a point at which the universe started. Uh, there was the Big Bang, but then as soon as the universe existed, it existed everywhere equivalently, and so there is no center to it. When you do travel at very high speeds, though, you do invoke some of Einstein's rules and uh, his theory of special relativity, for example, and also general relativity plays part. And when you are traveling at the speed of light, then you measure time ticking at the same rate it always has. But if someone else measures time for them, relative to them, time is changing and traveling at a very different rate for you. So if I traveled away into the universe and I went at the speed of light, time for me would tick along at the rate at which time normally does. But for you, it would be traveling much, much faster. And you see this portrayed in Hollywood from time to time where people use various tricks of physics to produce enormous changes in time frame. We know that this is real because molecule, and this is because the two are what we call covalently bonded. They make up for the fact that they haven't got a complete suite of electrons orbiting around each of the atoms by linking together two atoms and sharing them out. So each of them can pretend part of the time they have the right configuration of electrons and that makes them more energetically stable. So nitrogen is N2, and if you turn nitrogen into liquid nitrogen, the way you've done that is to take some air from the room, you squeeze it very hard, it gets hot, you take the heat away and it then condenses into a liquid and at minus about 200 degrees centigrade, the nitrogen condenses into liquid nitrogen and you have a clear transparent fluid, which if you have a glass of that that you hold up to the light, you will see it bubbling like boiling water, except that it's boiling at minus 200 degrees. But in the same way, that water is still water, whether it's liquid or boiling to make steam, it's still H2O, yes. nitrogen is still N2, whether it's as a liquid or whether it's in the air that you're breathing in the room. I got you, I got you. So I've got a question for you, but this is not even really appealing to your scientific side. I wanted to know your opinion. Did you by any chance get to watch the Netflix film Don't Look Up? 
I haven't actually. Tell you me more. have to. Okay, so this is so exciting for me. So Don't Look Up is about a group of scientists who discovered that there is a massive comet that's coming to Earth and it's going to basically obliterate the Earth within six months and some time. And they try to make the U.S. president uh, aware of it, played by Meryl Streep. Now, it is basically playing on how the world views climate change and how we're not responding quick enough. But they've basically taken that as a metaphor into this film where there's this comet coming to Earth and there's going to be massive destruction of Earth. So I would love to hear your opinion next week because I know you're going to watch it. <laughs> if I can. Did they give the comet a male name or a female name? Because that uh, may also it, make a difference. They gave it the name of the scientist who discovered it who was a female. Oh, well, that's probably why everyone ignored it to start with then. <laughs> and the same as they ignored Hurricane Katrina. Yes. Exactly the same. So uh, that will be the homework for you, Doctor. I hope you don't mind. Uh, we've got a call, Sbu in Observatory. Hi, Sbu. Hello? Yes, go mm-hmm. ahead, Sbu. Yes, I have a question, uh, uh, please. Uh, I want to know the, the balloons people throw in the air, like lots of them. What... Uh, pollution to the cause of the industry and uh, straight to the end I've always wondered if, what happens to those balloons do they cause any harm to the environment or it just end up in space that's such a good question yeah. Boo, uh, doctor the sorts of balloons that we tend to see launched into the air en masse like that are often uh, aluminized plastic balloons in other words they use a coating of aluminium metal like we do with crisp packets because the gas that you're going to put inside them is helium, H-E, and this is one of the smallest particles known to man. Um, it's the second element in the periodic table, and because it hangs around as atoms, not molecules, because it's a noble gas, it's tiny. And this means it can creep out through the gaps between the molecules that make up a rubber balloon. So if you cover them in aluminium, then the gas molecules find it much harder to get through, and your balloon stays inflated for longer. Downside is that you are therefore contaminating things with the environment with something that's much more stable and resilient. These balloons do hang around for a really long time. They, they, they are plastic. There's no natural way for the environment to break them down. And they're also, because they've got reflective aluminium on them, going to re- repel ultraviolet, which helps to break down plastic quick for, for longer. So the answer is, yes, they are a threat to the environment. They're great fun. We like doing this, but they aren't good in the long term because they do cause pollution and and every balloon counts and they will build up in the environment. They will also cause other sort of insults because some animals mistake them for things they can eat. Some animals get tangled up in the strings associated with them and they're also unsightly. And these are the examples of things that when we used to do this a little bit, it wasn't too much of a problem. But with people doing it in a massive way, multiple times, you you think every little helps to build up into a big problem. So, yes, they are a big problem. There are bigger fish to fry in terms of bigger gains we can make than stopping people releasing balloons into the air, though, because we're also doing even more destructive things in other aspects to the world. But but you're quite right, and, and I've gone out walking in the countryside near me many times, and you see these balloons tangled up in hedgerows and in ditches, and they'll be there for decades to come. And when I think about the fact that uh, when I was younger, it was a little thing that we would do, I'm sure it doesn't happen today, um, where you'd write a letter to get a pen pal and put like your postal address and it would just go up into the sky 
and somebody would find it and st- you'd start writing each other. And it was such a oh, fun no, thing to do. That, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Did you ever do that? Did you actually get any pen friends from that? I got a pen friend. I'm sure it died out after a good couple of months, but it was very exciting. The fact that literally anybody, I, I don't remember how far away, but it was, I was, I was a Pretoria girl. So I think it was within the city still and not too far away, but it was so exciting. But when you think about the fact that, Literally, a paedophile could have picked up your balloon. Well, and just, I was just going to say, can you imagine, right? The the data protection implications. Can you imagine us doing that today, where we think, oh, I'm I'm going to, as a vulnerable individual, put all my details, including where I live, on this nice sticker, <laughs> and, and send it out into the wide world for anyone to have? Um, it's a shame, isn't it, that that we don't do yeah. that because it, it is exciting. And and I remember, I remember doing that, thinking, oh, I hope someone does write to me. They never did. I think my balloon must have come down in the sea or something, or they just looked at me and thought, no. I don't want to write to that guy. He sounds boring. Um, but these days we have other ways of doing it, of course, don't we? I mean, we go online chiefly and most most um, electronic, most friendships start electronically these days. I mean, I, I'm no exception because when I first started as a medical student at Cambridge University, I was given really one of the world's first email addresses because email was only just getting going then. Yes. And I opened up my inbox and there was an email in there already. And I thought, that's interesting. Where's that come from? And it was a young lady at the University of Maryland in America. And she said, I picked your name at random from all of the people I found online at Cambridge University because I'm just learning to use email. So here's a message. And so I wrote back to her and she thought she wrote back to me and, and we actually started corresponding. And then we met up when she came over from the States to come and, and visit to do something else in the UK. But I said, well, if you're coming, why don't we meet up? And we became lifelong friends. She came eventually to my wedding. I flew back <gasps> wow. and went to her wedding. And, and we, we stay in touch, you know, 20 years plus, 25 years later, we're still communicating. So I think electronic communications can work better and over longer distances than balloons, to be honest with you. Isn't it scary, though, that at some point there was what we had called the yellow pages that would be published by Telcom, where everybody's names physical addresses and landline numbers would be published and distributed oh, yeah. to everyone. <laughs> like, I think about it and I'm like, we grew up in that time. This is so, so crazy. All right, there's another question that has come through. I don't know if you can help with this one, but they say, which would affect a human being's psych- psychology more? No internet for a month or no bathing or showering for a month? Well, we never used to have the internet and people survived just fine. And we never had baths, and people survived just fine. So I think people can probably get used to both. If you are a slave to the internet and a slave to mobile devices, then I think probably you would find that a wrench. And I think you probably would wonder how to, what to do with yourself for a little while. Bathing? Mm, I think that's something you would get used to. And when there's a war, when there's famine and earthquakes and things, people in war-torn parts of the world, they do very quickly adapt and I think that would that would probably be something we could adapt to too so I, I would say actually people probably would actually find both of them equivalently hard but there's a generation of younger people that would probably rather rather go without food than go without their mobile connection <laughs> so I'd say it, it would depend on the age of the person you were talking to is how I'd, I'd go with that. Alright another question in the event of a nuclear war how would one recognize the symptoms of acute radiation sickness and is there any safe way to decontaminate yourself and your loved ones why is radioactivity bad well radioactivity that comes from for instance nuclear weapons is bad because 
when it gets inside your body, it's very hard to get it out of your body because the atoms and particles can lodge in your lungs if you breathe them in. They can be absorbed into your through your gut and then get into your bloodstream and certain tissues preferentially pick up certain kinds of ions or uh, atoms because they want to use them. A good example, radioactive iodine, which the thyroid gland in your neck uses to make the hormone thyroxine, so it picks the stuff up. So this can become concentrated in certain parts of the body. If you've got something which is highly radioactive in your body, it's going to spit out radiation within your tissues and it's going to do devastating damage to the cells which are growing the fastest. So that's that's exactly the same really as having radiotherapy and you we all know what the effects of that will be. So once it's in your body, it's very hard to get it out of your body and it will cause short-term effects which is damage to rapidly growing cells which will cause things like anemias, bleeding, hair hair loss, skin thinning, and it will also cause long-term effects, which are that if you're deluging your body in radiation from within, then there's a high risk that you are going to uh, damage your DNA in certain fast-growing cells, and that could lead to cancer. So there's short-term and long-term consequences. Prevention is always better than cure. So if you are at risk of being exposed, you take steps to avoid exposure. Don't get this stuff into your body in the first place. And if you're in a contaminated environment, wear face coverings to stop you breathing it in, wash off very carefully to make sure you don't take any home with yourself. And if you have to grow foods or whatever in the area, you grow them in soil that you know is is low risk, it hasn't been contaminated, or you scrape off the soil that has been contaminated and you grow your, your food and vegetables in soils that are low, low level of radioactivity because plants would also pick up and concentrate some of these radioactive forms in the same way that the human body would. Um, we had a very interesting question, but I'm going to leave it for next time because we would have run out of time. But I th- it might be a yes-no answer for you. It simply asks, is it true that a woman who has slept with multiple partners can pass the DNA to her offspring? That's from Ruben. Uh, the answer is no, and I'll explain why next time. <laughs> I also just am like... Isn't this an, a given? Maybe it's not a given because there's this belief that, yeah, yeah. Please, we need to remember this, Chris. You're going to remember that next time you're going to answer this. Yeah. If you have multiple children in one pregnancy, then you could. If you're having a single baby, that baby's got one dad because one sperm fertilizes one egg to make yes. one baby. Okay. Okay. Dr. Christmas, thank you so, so much. We will pick that up when we are back together on Monday. Thank you so much for tuning in to 702 Afternoons with myself.